1: clients of ARK Investment Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of FYI. I'm Nicholas Gruse. I'm an analyst at ARK working on the Next Generation Internet theme. And today I have with me two Andrews, Andrew Kim, an ARK Research Associate, and our very special guest, Andrew Paradise, CEO of Skills. For those of you not familiar with the company, Skills is a leading mobile games platform that enables competitive esports style play. Leveraging its patented matchmaking technology, Skills hosts billions of casual esports tournaments worldwide. To give a bit more background before we jump in, the global mobile gaming space is estimated to be worth around 100 billion as of 2020. That would represent roughly 57% of the entire market, which stood at $175 billion last year. What that implies is that mobile gaming is larger than the combined console and PC gaming markets. So with that bit of information, let's hear from Andrew Paradise, CEO and founder of Skills. Welcome Andrew, and thanks for coming on the show. We're very excited to have you. Thanks for having me, excited to be here. Yeah, I'd love to just start with a bit on your background because Skills wasn't the first company you were a part of creating. And if you could just tell us that journey towards skills, how and why you ended up founding Skills all the way back in
0: 2012. I'd love to just hear the setup for this wonderful run you've had with Skills so far. Sure. So by background, I'm an inventor, turned entrepreneur, turned business builder, but I've really been a lifelong gamer. I learned how to program from video games when I was a pretty small child. So when you think about my different endeavors, my most recent company, Prior to Skills, I invented Mobile Self Checkout. It's a uh, mobile payments and data company. Prior to this, that I sold to Intuit where I was a director when we were uh, getting Skills off the ground. Skills is really the culmination of all of my interests in one company. It's gaming, but even more than gaming, it's really a data and payments technology system built on top of video games. and It enables video games to run, I say, better competitive experiences. It's an interesting thing to look at all the different things I've done across my career and see how they're represented in different facets inside of skills. And I'm just curious, what was the
2: original vision? Was it always to create this competitive esports platform or was it more geared towards payments? Like what opportunity did you see back almost 10
0: years ago in the mobile esports space? The first time I thought of the idea of Skills was actually when Valve open-sourced the first game engine back in 2004. The idea for Skills wasn't as interesting or lucrative back then because there was kind of no there there on building out a technology that would integrate into the game engines themselves. There were very few games built on the Half-Life engine back in 2004. And so as the world progressed and times changed, it so happened that companies like Unity and Unreal, they started further codifying and building out the gaming world and enabling more and more companies to take advantage of open source game engines. And as that happened, the opportunity for what skills could be for this technology idea became better and better. And at the same time, you have this interesting effect happening in the free-to-play mobile gaming market where developers were having more and more trouble monetizing their art existing schemas for monetizing video games, whether it's in-game advertising, which more or less directly attacks retention, or it's in-app purchasing, where I think you have a pretty significant drawback in that you really have to design your game from the ground up around this monetization schema. It became a very attractive thing to build skills and to offer the service to the developer community. And so that's the kind of the why now and why we got into this space in the first place. Gosh, and it is crazy to think 2012, because it is, you're right, it is nine years ago now. Yeah, it's incredible. And it's really interesting
2: to see how the platform's grown in the two-sided marketplace where you have one side and the consumers, the other side developers. I'm just curious, you know, it's been now nine years. Where is the platform today? How is it growing? What kind of engagement are you seeing overall? And especially if you could just touch on maybe just overall mobile video gaming, because that's been on a massive run over the past nine years. So you've really hit this trend in
0: the right timing of it. Yeah. Well, to use the sports quote that I love about why mobile gaming, we always quote Gretzky on you got to skate where the puck is going, not where it's been. And when you think about mobile gaming and why it's so important, well, when we started, it was an $8 billion segment in 2012. It's 86 billion today. It's expected to be 161 billion by 2025. Not really that hard to imagine this when you think about it, because in 12 there were 800 million mobile devices. Today, there are 4 billion mobile devices and tablets. And in 2025, it's projected there'll be 10 billion. So when you think about mobile gaming and interactive content, it's really about content and experiences, consumer content that's designed for these devices that are now everywhere. In terms of where it's going, I think... Issues in terms of monetization that we saw back in 2012 when we started the business, they've only become more and more significant over time. Across the nine years we've been building, it's really been the same service, this B2B2C business model, where we enable developers to run better competitive video games. The market has been developing and we've very much been right timing what we built against this secular shift in consumer behavior. And in terms of the service and what we do, the platform enables developers to skip what would be a multi-hundred million dollar investment now in building a video game, just a technological build. And and then even more importantly, as we've been networking together more and more game developers' content, we're able to provide sophisticated data science around things like anti-cheat and anti-fraud that enable developers to run, I'd say, fairer gameplay and more competitive experiences than really have ever existed before skills. Yeah, that's amazing. And we were just other Andrew
2: on this podcast, Andrew Kim, we're just discussing kind of the growth in global gaming. And you touted these enormous figures. And we were looking at just Q1 of this year, mobile gaming had posted around $30 billion in global revenues, which is just insane to really think about how large this market is, and the role that skills is playing in it. And I want to just touch on really the core functionality in this matchmaking and the skill-based gaming. Just curious to get your thoughts on how you set this up and how it's grown over time. Yeah, Yeah, basically you're asking why we set up the service and how it's modified. Just in terms of the matchmaking side of in terms of when I open up a skills game, or a game built on top of skills, this matchmaking that you guys have built into the overall experience, and that I'm matching with someone who's at a same skill level as me. And how are you pulling in all of these data points, and how you've kind of grown that side of the platform over time?
0: Uh, yes, of course. Well, so when we set out to build the business, we realized that cheating and fraud were going to be one of the absolutely biggest hurdles. I was uh, somewhat of a hacker back in my heyday of programming when I was a kid, and I think. When you talk about hacking on the internet and video games, it's sort of your perfect nexus when you introduce real prize play inside of a game. And what I mean by that is you both can, as a hacker, get fame and fortune in one hack, <laughs> which makes us it, it, just such an attractive target. When I was a programmer back in my teens, we'd even use hardware hacks to play games like Counter-Strike. So you can actually take a soldering iron, you can burn a hole in the chip on a ATI Radeon 100. And what happens is it actually, it stops the walls from rendering in Counter-Strike. And so when you think about the complexity of stopping cheating, it is really the same level of complexity as stopping viruses on the internet. And so we've just seen this really incredible level of attacks as we built the service out. And I think the positive side for our business is stopping those attacks Building out the technology to continuously protect the community, it creates a more and more formidable barrier to entry for anyone who would offer this kind of service. Because at the end of the day, our brand is entirely about trust and fairness. It's core to what we do. And trust, I'd say it's an esoteric concept. It's not a single feature. And as we've been building out more and more technology to stop cheating and fraud. And one of the things I think you just referenced Nicholas is that the concept of capturing hundreds of data points in a five minute game session, and then creating statistical maps of probabilistic next outcome, which is one of the many cool things we do. So real-time statistical detection of cheating. It really creates a differentiated barrier to entry for us. And it's a very interesting area of data science that attracts some of the best and brightest engineers. Yeah, that's amazing.
3: And on that note, I just wanted to ask if you see any variation in the difficulty of implementing anti-cheat and anti-fraud measures across different genres and formats of games, including 1v1 versus larger multiplayer
0: formats. When you think about matchmaking and the history of matchmaking, we studied everything from ELO, which is often quoted as uh, the go-to matchmaking uh, concept, for video games actually comes from Arvind Elo, the Hungarian mathematician who, you know, created Elo with this idea of building a better chess rating system. Applying it to video games has been uh, definitely somewhat flawed, and I think as we studied that, we studied what Microsoft did in terms of true skill. We looked at all the different work that folks had done in the history of matchmaking. We started with these great concepts and work that people had done in terms of algorithms around matchmaking, and then we expanded upon them. And I'd say similarly, when we thought about anti-cheat and anti-fraud, now matchmaking I'd say is definitely nuanced, whether it's 1v1 async or 1v1 synchronous, it is definitely different. Again, when you think about something like a uh, battle royale and how you'd want to do matchmaking there, anti-cheat and anti-fraud very much less so the many of the types of ways that someone would engage in cheating, software hacks, for example, trying to load scripts onto a device, things like that. All of those types of cheating systems are pretty similar from video game to video game. And so there's a lot of cross
2: applicability. As you explain this, it seems like such a more complex problem than Just match, And this is how I framed my original question was just around the matchmaking side, but not even realizing that there's this whole anti-fraud mechanism built into that. And maybe that's why, and this is my next question, why you don't see individual developers trying to build out this platform for a specific game and why they would choose a platform like Skills, which has already solved all of these really hard problems. Is that how you've experienced and maybe how conversations with game developers have gone before?
0: Yeah, I think the number of things you have to get right from ensuring fair play to actually providing, uh, I'd say, a much higher expectation of customer service for this uh, type of service. It creates a, between the patented technology and the higher expectations from the consumer, it very much is the unique selling proposition of our business. It's very much our strategic moat. And going back to just
3: the demand side of future game formats, how are you thinking about the growth of demand of asynchronous 1v1 and larger multiplayer formats, such as Battle Royale,
0: which has seen a lot of traction in recent years? I think it's just like the console and computer role before it. If you look at both of those Platforms for video games. They started with asynchronous video games. They moved into more simple 1v1 or 5v5 team type formats, and then eventually achieved some of the massive multiplayer type games that we now kind of know and love. You're going to see that same development on mobile. In fact, if you go over to the Countries in the Far East. If you think about China, one of the most popular video games there is a mobile battle royale, right? It's a variant of Player Unknown Battlegrounds, uh popular IP that was originally developed for computer. So as the industry progresses from here, you know, I think more and more consumers are going to be seeking out deeper and richer and more sophisticated content experiences on mobile and tablet. I also think we'll see a growth of things like a controller or screen adaptations that can be attached to a mobile device to extend the computer into more of a console type experience. In many ways that I would argue that a mobile device, it is a lot like a Game Boy. If you remember those from back in my day, <laughs> they, you know, it's a device, you think about a smartphone, it's a, almost a funny word because the majority of content that people download from the app stores is video games. The majority of time spent is video games. And so it's kind of interesting that we call it a smartphone instead of describing it as a gaming device. Yeah, that's a great point. And I also still have my my Game Boy with all of my original
2: Pokemon cartridges. And also, hey. I've, I've seen a ton <laughs> of the controllers that you can connect to smartphones popping up all over my different social media feeds. I've been very close to purchasing one as I've kind of shifted gears into some of these more mobile-based Battle Royale games. And I just want to switch gears here, and it's adjacent to what we're talking about, and in just terms of the monetization happening on the platform and how that may look differently as it shifts from primarily one v one, and if you get into more multiplayer style, like if you could just kind of elaborate on the monetization of the platform and how it stacks up to know other ways to monetize mobile gaming.
0: Sure. So. We primarily monetize through what's sometimes referred to as skill-based gaming or charging a transaction fee on entry fees into prize competitions on the platform. That's well over 90% of monetization today. However, I'd argue we're more broadly in the business of competition. And so when we think about the skills platform and what we do, we're building the best competition platform ever created on the internet. And so when you think about monetizing competition, there are several ways that you can monetize competition beyond just Charging entry fees, you can engage in brand sponsored advertising, for example. You can engage in merchandise sales. In fact, if you look at the offline world of competition at physical sports, these are all ways to monetize a sport. And so, as we uh, continue to expand skills, we expect to enter into these new monetization streams. And candidly, though, even our first monetization stream of being able to charge entry fees and charge a transaction fee that we share with our developer partners. That monetization is outperforming the best monetization methods really right now available, which are in-app purchasing or in-game advertising. Both of those, uh, as we often cover, they have some drawbacks that uh, Skills is solving. So in terms of the in-app purchasing model, your average mobile game is getting about 2% of the audience to pay in-app purchasing, whereas your average mobile game using skills technology is getting actually as of last quarter, 17% of the audience to pay. So you're providing the consumer with a service that they're eight times more likely to pay for. As everyone listening can probably imagine, getting more consumers to participate in paying means you can generate indeed more revenue per thousand consumers that use a service. Separately, if you think about in-game advertising, Advertising, as I mentioned earlier on the podcast, it directly attacks retention in these games. So for every dollar you make, you actually are losing some audience. It's somewhat of a zero-sum game right now. I think we want to continue to help developers build monetization that actually enriches the game experience and extends retention rather than attacks it. Absolutely. So just
2: on that note around advertising, you guys, this is very top of mind have just went out and acquired a company called Arky. Could you just elaborate, not to be confused with Arc by the way, just elaborate on that acquisition and how this fits into the monetization and overall platform because I think it does tie in here a bit if
0: I'm not mistaken. Arky is a leading technology driven DSP or demand side platform with deep domain expertise in mobile gaming. By acquiring Arky, we're actually capturing more of the value chain in the mobile gaming ecosystem. And this really accomplishes multiple things for skills right away. One, it makes our business a stronger partner for our core customer, the game developer. And two, it increases our monetization advantage so we can generate higher LTV per thousand consumers captured onto the platform. Beyond even that, we actually, we see several areas for synergy beyond those first two reasons. First is this year, the transaction will make our user acquisition efforts significantly more efficient. We're going to spend $200 million in user acquisition marketing this year, so efficiencies here have a meaningful opportunity on our PL in the future. Second, integrating our data pipelines will make ARCY's machine learning algorithms smarter, faster. They'll improve the marketing performance, not just for us, but also for all of ARCY's existing customers. And these benefits will result in a better ecosystem that delivers higher quality ads to consumers, better performance for marketers, and improved content creation for developers. Third... We're going to be able to enhance the value proposition for all of our developers who are looking to build successful businesses by helping these developers build better games acquire users more efficiently skills becomes a more important partner to the developer network and it helps us grow our network of content creators and then finally we've expressed our intentions to expand internationally this acquisition actually dramatically improves the footprint of the business globally we're establishing offices in several large markets, including the United Kingdom, Japan, the Philippines, and Korea. And as you said, this acquisition is really helping your
3: developer-oriented business model here. I just wanted to kind of ask at a higher scale, how has your developer community evolved since the beginning of Skills? I guess, not only in number or quality of games released, but also in terms of network and collaboration effects. Are you seeing different developers interacting with one another, collaborating, bringing new developers on board, et cetera?
0: Yeah, so the developer community has grown due to what we offer them. We handle everything from customer service to payment processing, to anti-cheat, to fraud prevention. All of this is to enable our developer partners to focus on what they do best, which is really creating great games. Our developer challenge most recently launched with uh, the NFL is a really good example of how we're growing the developer network and business. We in the NFL are we're just really thrilled by the turnout from both large and small developers for that competition. We've been pleased to see this response, not just from the existing developers on the skills platform, but also literally in the hundreds of new developers signing up and joining the skills platform for the first time, which as you can imagine, we're all very excited about. But I think what I'd say is not just a story there with the NFL about quantity. We're also impressed and excited by the quality of the concepts from all the developer community that was submitted. And we're very much excited about the next phase of the competition, which will be selecting which concepts that will go into development and that'll be happening next. That's awesome. And I know you can't make any
3: forecasts on your next hit game, but I guess, historically, what are some common traits that you have seen across your more popular games? And are these traits evolving in any way?
0: So we democratize gaming by leveling the playing field. And the the goal of the platform is to make gaming fair and accessible. There isn't one specific genre or game format that is most important to competitive gameplay on Skills Platform, but it's really often about capturing that lightning in a bottle, finding the fun, as they say, in the gaming industry. And then our competitive systems layered on top of that create this incredibly compelling success formula. The players, though, at the end of the day, they vote with their fingers. And I wish we could tell every developer a secret formula if there was one. Maybe I wouldn't want to let it out of the bag here. <laughs> but it is really all about, so to speak, unleashing that inner champion out of our players through competition, creating that unique, relevant, competitive gameplay. That's really the common thread across all of the games I'd say for media companies more broadly, it's often impossible to predict what movie or TV show or song will become the next blockbuster or what may be called the so-called fast track to DVD. Gaming is really no different. So saying expectations that any given game will be successful doesn't make sense or trying to compare, to use another movie analogy, the best of horror against the best of comedy or the best of Westerns. It's very much the reason that we don't include any new potential games in our revenue guidance, meaning that any new hit games will be purely incremental upside to the existing forecast. And while I can't not, I definitely cannot tell you what will be the highest performing games in the next quarters to come. I can almost guarantee you that they'll continue to change over time. Our top games in 2019 were different from those in 2020, and that'll likely differ from the top games at the end of 2021.
2: I have a bit of a adjacent question to Andrews in terms of maybe one aspect and something that we've been tracking at ARC in terms of the growing social nature of gaming. It's something that we've seen more in AAA titles where you have the Fortnites of the world really rolling out and pushing towards these virtual world style games or spaces where you can kind of just hang out. Are you seeing that in any of the games on your platform or just let's, take it off the platform and just talk gaming as a whole. What are your thoughts on this growing trend of social within gaming?
0: I mean, here to stay and expand. It's been going on for many years, even beyond the games you mentioned. If you think about World of Warcraft, it's very much a, it's more of a social network than it is a video game. I think that's only more and more true as more of the world adopts video games. So, when I think about the path forward and the way our platform is evolving, absolutely, social is a big piece of gaming for us and the future. That's why we launched a few different technologies. I can tell you about. So we launched. A chat system that's in game and cross game, a player friend system, the ability to engage with those friends in the games you play and to share content. I think as we continue to go forward, more and more of gaming will be very much about that social experience, both on skills and off skills. I think it's just a universal truth about why the next generation of consumers wants this kind of content and what their expectations are from this kind of content.
2: And what about spectating, right? Because you have all of these e-sports and tournaments happening on the platform. How are you trying to integrate spectating or the content side? Because we've seen a ton of growth in a lot of these streaming services, people just spending time watching someone else play a game. And I imagine that's even more amplified when it's a competitive style game and there's something on the line, so to speak. How do you view that kind of side of the gaming space?
0: Well, uh, first of all, yeah, I would say very much core to what we're doing. The journey to build out a game agnostic spectator engine for us started actually in 2015, it took us all the way through now to continue to build out a service that can record and broadcast all the games we're integrated into without any incremental work from the developer when they're going live. So if you think about it from like a technology standpoint, it's really an amazing piece of patented technology that we built there. It's making it so that all these developers' games all of a sudden are being recorded and broadcast, even though they weren't before. The reason you want to do that is the first step, I'd say, is getting the content off of the phone, so to speak, and out onto the internet. Then you can look at how are you layering in experiences around the spectator piece? So how do you engage the broadcaster? How do you create tools for the broadcaster? And so where we are now as a business is we're building out more and more technology tools for these broadcasters so that they'll be able to run meaningful spectator experiences, unlike what's ever been seen before. And some of the technologies that we've patented over there to talk about a few, we built the world's first esports ticker. We built the world's first esports teleprompter. We have uh, data feeds that integrate inside of the game engine and actually are informing the broadcaster with up to 400 plus facts about each of the people playing. What that really means is that we will be able to, as we expand this service, provide a more compelling narrative for the people watching. It's very much our goal there. And so social on the internet is such an important theme. And it's something where we've just continued to build out the technology to really meet the future need of the market. Absolutely,
2: and it, you guys are kind of attacking both pieces of what we believe because you have the in-game socialization and then also off-game socialization, all of the content and everything that happens around the game. And it seems like you guys are really tackling both of those
0: problems. That's right. That's very much right. We're we are building very actively against both vectors, and I think the expectation I would set for people is that they'll see more and more meaningful progress around what we internally have been calling skills TV. And, uh, but uh, also if you've played any of the games that are now using the social technology from us, we're really focused right now on getting the one V one real time experience, right? Whether it's in racing or in fighting games, there are just many genres left to explore and build on the platform. So The years ahead, I think, are even more exciting than the years behind in terms of all the work we've done to build this technology and get to market a platform that can deliver the promise of what esports can be for the world. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Because I think we're starting to see it today in terms of these arenas filling up and there's million dollar prize pools. And that was promised to gamers almost 10 years ago. And it's really starting to come to fruition today. And I think skills is playing a leading role on the mobile side of this. Because a lot of that is happening more on the console and PC.
0: Yeah, and I think today it's very PC console based. But again, I think what we'll see over the next few years is a flight to mobile, so to speak, where mobile becomes the most important form of computing. It feels almost
2: natural when you think about it because PC and console were around much longer than mobile. So you have all of these professionals and people that have spent years playing on PC and console, whereas mobile really only has, you know, 10-ish years to have gained that. So it feels like, but it is today the largest category of the three in terms of revenue and players. So it's kind of lagging behind those two, but it makes sense that it's where the fuck is going. That's kind of how I'm viewing it.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I've got you saying it. Yeah, that's a
1: great quote. <laughs>
2: I guess
3: on the other end of the spectrum, you know, skills has really allowed for casual esports, quote unquote, right? All the gamers that want to compete but are not necessarily in the professional esports bracket to thrive on your platform through the democratization of gaming. I just wanted to ask about consumer behavior on that front as it pertains to spectating versus playing. And with this centralization, right, through skills, of casual esports consumers and players. How do you see spectating evolving on that front compared to, I guess, the more hardcore esports spectating?
0: Well, the thing you have going for it on casual, it's just so massive in terms of the number of people who participate in playing casual games. It's a much larger number of gamers than the hardcore genres as the names might imply. And so when you think about the spectator experience, it's really interesting because I think people might say, hey, it'll never work to watch a Candy Crush style game. But I'd point out to you, there actually was a Candy Crush TV show launched. that while it may have failed that particular creative, just the fact that the game is so widely played, I think it attracted a lot of initial viewer interest. Now, the spectator experience in and of itself has to be a compelling content experience, right? It's like building quality TV. So I don't think we should expect just because a game is popular, that the viewing of that game will be popular. Another area I'd point to you that I was talking with a group and they were saying, well, solitaire, would anyone ever spectate solitaire? Like, what do you think about that? And they thought it was like kind of crazy. And I said, well, you know, if we had all sat here 20 years ago, we said, Will anyone ever watch people play poker on TV? You probably think it was crazy and that they wouldn't spectate it. And that yet here we are with the World Series of Poker and building out, I'd say, a very meaningful spectator audience that loves watching people play poker, for example. So I think it's about finding that drama and developing it, regardless of whether it's a more casual video game or a hardcore video game.
3: And on the same front, I would assume that there's more of a positive feedback loop in casual gaming, right? In which spectating you know, leads to more playing and vice versa, whereas that's not as present in the more hardcore genres.
0: Yes. Well, I think that's right. I think when you think about the world of spectating and gameplay for casual, some of the experiences that we've been pioneering are really almost like uh, user participation shows, like a trivia show, right? Like a Wheel of Fortune style game where the audience actually can walk up and jump into the fray. And then you all of a sudden go from audience to become the players in the game. I think we'll see stuff like that for casual more so than probably like a deep and meaningful competitive game and spectator experience like a League of Legends or Counter-Strike.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I would go back. I remember watching, I think it was a Netflix documentary on kind of the origins of gaming, video gaming, and how... Esports was very natural back then, right? You had people crowding around arcade machines, and and one of the games there that really always struck out to me that people were always trying to beat someone else at was Tetris and Pac Man. I think those, in terms of you know, they don't translate well over to PC and console, but they translate well over to mobile. And I think you know, there's always going to be a market. And when you brought up solitaire, right? I I remember as a kid, you know, crowding around watching my family play. I think my cousin plays solitaire almost every single day so she would be someone who would you know watch that in a competitive manner so i think there's so much there and especially when you start to think about the democratization when you break it down to that level you don't need to find a million plus people or 2 million plus people that are interested in this specific game it really only takes a few thousand or tens of thousands of people to really have something in terms of a community and an esports style environment
0: that's right i think the democratization of esports is a pretty interesting thing. We're certainly known as the company that is the leader in casual esports in the world. And I think as you look at the development of different genres and different spectator experiences in this future, it's going to be pretty cool. I think there will be a lot of different types of experiences that people can enjoy. And you won't have to necessarily decide whether you like watching solitaire or playing it or League of Legends, right? You can do both. Yeah. It's a a beautiful thing. (laughs) Yeah. And something we talk
2: about internally at Arc is the fact that the gaming space as a whole has never really cannibalized itself. Each iteration of gaming. So when you go from maybe the arcade, but the arcade is still around. Right. So each iteration has always just built the gaming space up in terms of mobile built on top of console, console built on top of PC. But those markets still exist in great size. Uh, You're talking about tens of billions of dollars, each mobile being the largest today. So each iteration, and this is to compare it to other types of entertainment that has always cannibalized itself. When you talk about what music streaming did to physical, what streaming in video today is doing to linear TV, it's a really interesting market to be in.
0: That's right. That's very much right. I think one of the most exciting things about the game spaces, not only did mobile grow so significantly over these last 10 years, but console and PC games have grown as well. So it does seem to create a virtuous loop from platform to platform. Yeah. And, you know, I'm someone who
2: plays all three. So
1: it's
2: it's great. I leave my house. I play my mobile game. I come in, I play PC or console. And that's what's so amazing about kind of the space, being able to shift through these different hardware formats and such. And just the last question for you, Andrew, and thank you so much for coming on. This has been an amazing conversation. What are you most excited about for skills going forward? What are you really looking forward to? And then I don't know if you're going to answer this, but what is your favorite game on the platform? I'm, I'm very curious.
0: Okay. So let's see. What am I most excited about going forward? Look, I'm as excited about skills continuing to expand inside mobile and tablet games and, There are new genres that are coming online, like first-person shooter recently with Big Buck Hunter Marksman in Q1, or thinking about, I mean, we recently did actually sign up Tetris, and Tetris went live in Q4 of last year. Either of those games kind of tinkered to where they've gotten it right, and they're blowing it out. Not yet, but seeing them build and work is really exciting for what it means for the future of mobile gaming and tablet. I also am excited about skills moving beyond mobile gaming and two vectors I'd say that we talk about. One is moving to other technology platforms. So computer console are certainly areas that we think about where we should power the future of competition. Similarly, we also are looking beyond video games into other areas where I'd say a competition system can have a very meaningful future. And two vectors we talk about there are pioneering in the education field and in the exercise field. At the end of the day, if you think about a company like Peloton, in many ways, Peloton is a video game. It's a video game where you pump your feet as fast as you can, and you compete against other people on the leaderboard. And you can do it live or asynchronously. And so we think a lot about what that means, the gamification of exercise and how big the potential is. And we're just very excited about that future one other maybe much more tangible one when then going up far afield and talking about pioneering and exercise just going international it's going to be very exciting for us today 90 percent of the revenue of our business comes from north america the international market is five times the size of the domestic market for video games and for mobile games so we're really excited about expanding into asia into europe over the coming years we've announced we'll go into india by the end of this year But there's a target list of next countries and excited to bring the service everywhere. That's
2: amazing. And the exercise point is so true because I'm sitting next to my Peloton and I can tell you right now, I compete with my girlfriend. And I compete with my friends who have a Peloton and this is all happening verbally or through chat and even on outdoor runs, right? I'm seeing on Strava who is faster than me, who's running more than me. There's just competitive nature in a lot of exercise and just beyond exercise. So it does seem that the platform can definitely reach outside gaming, but great to hear you kind of elaborate on that point. It's amazing to hear.
0: Well, I won't ask you who's faster, you or your girlfriend, but but, uh, I think the reality is both of you are winning just by competing, right? And that's what the platform is all about. And it's very much that experience of bringing out the best in people through competition. Absolutely. And again, thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on.
2: We look forward to speaking again and watching skills continue to grow. All right. Thanks for having
0: me, Nicholas. Have a good day. You too.